Here's the lesson ahead of us today on abounding grace. Don't trust in men. Trust in the Lord your God. Men will let you down. It will be a painful letdown. They will not come through like you expected. And only because God allows that to reveal himself to you that he's your sufficiency. That he's going to take care of you and me. And even if you have to deal with some of the consequences of that type of decision, God will still be faithful. And we don't want to trust in man. And yet it's repeated over and over again. This is amazing grace. Whether you've been granted a position of leadership in your church, in the home, or even in our nation, the way you lead and live matters. We're to serve well. When we don't, the people that follow us will suffer. That's one of the takeaway lessons from 1 Kings 15 that we'll bring to your attention today on Abounding Grace. We're noticing that there were both good and bad kings in Israel's history, all of which we can learn from. So let's do that now as we turn things over to Pastor Ed Taylor. I want to show you something in Luke chapter 14. Would you turn over there with me? Luke chapter 14. Pick up with me in verse 25, would you? Because it reminds me of a teaching that Jesus gave. In Luke chapter 14, it's a, it's a stunning, for those of you that are new to the Bible, uh, this is a stunning teaching. And as, as you read it, you're reminded in verse 25, great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That, that's pretty strong language. If you don't hate your own blood relation family, Jesus says, then you cannot be a disciple. And those are put in opposition to them. Now, we automatically think of words in the context of how we understand them. And when we think of hatred, we immediately thinking uh, of, of mistreating or hurting or in some way saying bad things about them. And that's not the essence of this word at all. It's a word of value. It's a word of priority. Hate my mom, hate my dad, or in this case with Asa, I need to express a, a hatred toward my grandmother who is in rank, rebellious idolatry, or I have to uh, hate a grandmother that is resisting the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, but how? The idea is the priority of commitments. Jesus would be saying it this way. When you've chosen to follow God, you've chosen to be his disciple, and the choice between following Jesus is put up against the choice of the pressure of your own human family. Jesus says the choice is for him. You could even say, as some translators have, have and commentators have said, instead of the word hate, you replace it with the word love less. The highest priority of love is reserved for God alone. He tells us that we're to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbor and as ourselves. That's the order. 
But oftentimes in the, real, in the reality of life, that's flipped around. And time and time again, I've seen, uh, time again, I've seen families and believers have a higher love for their family than they do for the things of the Lord. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not speaking about church. I'm not speaking about ministry. I'm not speaking about some commitment you made to do something for your church. Let's not reduce it down to something that the Bible isn't speaking of. I mean really making the commitments that will lead your family in a love relationship with God. I mean really being able to put your foot down when it's relation to relatives in your family that as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord unashamedly. It's not that we don't love you anymore. It's not that we care less about you, but we have a new love that's been introduced to our home and to our family. And when it comes to our choices and the decision matrix that we have, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, your decision matrix must be for him first. If it's not, not only can you not be his disciple, in that moment you're not living as his disciple. I mean, whether it's parents worshiping their children or it's a marriage that has been reduced to rubble by allowing in-law, the influence of in-laws to do a destructive work or on and on, there can be examples. This isn't, hatred isn't, Jesus isn't teaching us to be mean-spirited, you know, toward our parents and, and just a heavy duty, you know, Man, I hate you because of Jesus. It's, that, that's sinful. But the reality of this is that when you're following Jesus, you're truly all in or not in at all. And I see Asa here as an example. When it came down to the perverted persons in the land, took care of it. When it came down to the idols his, dad, his father's made, took care of it. And when it came down to his grandmother, who was seen like the pagans in Israel, they had a queen mother. What did he do? He removed her. We don't know exactly what that meant. If he came and picked her up and took her off, I don't, I don't know what it meant. But whatever it meant, it was declared that she was no longer viewed as a pagan queen mother in the nation of Israel, his own grandmother. And I'm certain that it came with requests. And I'm certain that it came with the, the type of reasoning that wasn't successful because he had to not only remove her, but also the obscene image. Obscene image. There's nothing that is more un... Uh, what's the word I want to use? Just not beautiful as an obscene senior citizen. It's just not attractive. It's not attractive as we grow older in age, we become more crude in our language or more crude in our images or the older we are, the more we'd be growing in the wisdom of the Lord. That God would give us the gray hair as a crown of our heads to represent him and not be obscene. And here Asa, he deals with it. Then notice in verse 16 as we read, there's war between Asa. Even though he's a good and godly king, he led people knowing that he answered to the Lord. Again, Asa is another leader that's not perfect. We'll learn in Second Chronicles 16. I encourage you to read it while it's fresh on your mind as he has this disease and he seeks out help from man instead of seeking help from the Lord. It ends disaster, disastrously and unfortunately. And I have to say, uh, I know this personally in my own life. Seeking the help of men instead of relying upon the Lord ends disastrously. The consequence is just so painful and so hard thinking that men... And I'm, I'm a man that knows the Bible. 
I know what the Bible says not to trust in horses and chariots. I know what the meaning of it is behind. I know what it, I know, I've seen what it's like to trust in men and, and I've experienced the disaster. So if you let, uh, you let Asa's example warn you, you let my example warn you, don't trust in men. Trust in the Lord your God. Men will let you down. It will be a painful letdown. They will not come through like you expected. And only because God allows that to reveal himself to you that he's your sufficiency that he's going to take care of you and me. And even if you have to deal with some of the consequences of that type of decision, God will still be faithful. And we don't want to trust in man. And yet it's repeated over and over again. God is looking for that man or woman of faith, you know. He's looking for that one that's going to trust in him, that will live day by day and moment by moment, relying upon the resources of God and not the resources of Adam. Do you know everything that you offer to God in the flesh is actually your Adam's gift to you in sin? Learning how to deal things with Adam, running away from God, sinning, not leading his home well, plunging the whole human race into sin. It's all Adam. Our flesh is just from Adam. And when will we learn finally that the resources of Adam are empty? Because in Adam, we've all sinned and inherited a fleshly set of tools and habits that never show us success. And yet we use them over and over again. They never give us the success that we thought they would bring. And Asa, we'll see that in Second Chronicles. We'll develop that much more uh, when we get there. Verse 25 now. Now Nadab... The son of Jeroboam became king over Israel, heading back up to the northern kingdom now. In the second year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned over Israel two years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's almost like reading Judges again and reading through some of the Judges and the cycles that they went through. Uh, He walked in the way of his father in his sin, which he had made Israel sin. Verse 27, Then Baasha, the son of Ahijah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which had belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. And it was so, when he became king, that he killed all those of the house of Jeroboam. He didn't leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilonite, which was just five years previously, by the way. Verse 30, because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did are not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. So we're taken back to the north, another evil king. Nadab predictably follows the sinful ways of his dad. And he continues in his father's sins. I have these marked. You might want to mark them in your Bible. But in verse 26, I just underline that. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father. That's going to be a theme constantly that God's going to be warning us about, dads and moms. And as a result, he's assassinated by Asha and succeeds him as king. And just just for you Bible students, just compare verse 29 with chapter 14. And you see the confirmation. And then finally, as we end the chapter... It says, there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over Israel and Terzah and reigned 24 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. 
So now Baasha rules and has the opportunity to really lead Israel back to the covenantal worship of the one true God. Every new king, even though we're reading it quickly and we see, oh, never did evil, walked in the evil of his father except for Asa, that each king has an opportunity to do what's right. Each king has an opportunity to change the tide of the nation. But of his own free will, he chose the life of sin. And even though he's witnessed himself the judgment of God, which resulted in the death of his brother, he still chooses the route of sin, worshiping idols and not the living God. And as we'll learn in, in, in our chapter next time, he chose the elevation of God of him to king as an opportunity to fulfill his own personal ambitions. Listen, spiritual leadership given to us within the context of the church today is not to fulfill our own personal ambitions. And it's not to fulfill our own personal agendas. But rather it's to fulfill the agenda of God. The Bible declares us in the New Testament as under shepherds. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we're to shepherd the flock of God that's among us. Jesus is the true shepherd and we as his servants are his under shepherds. He's actually called Jesus as the chief shepherd. And each time we're given a responsibility in his holy and righteous church, the bride of Christ, we have an opportunity to do things right. To, to lead people in the ways of the Lord. And a lot of guys and gals too somehow begin to think that they're the shepherds, that they're the true leaders. And it's not so. We're under shepherds. What's been given to us has been entrusted to us. There's a word that Paul, the apostle, uses when he talks to the church in Corinth. He calls us stewards. Stewards. Now, a steward was a person that had responsibility over everything but owned nothing. And it's a great picture of ministry. We have responsibility over the lives of people. We have responsibility over caring for them in a spiritual way. Now, this is specifically toward leaders and pastors right now, but you can, you can take this truth and expand it into the responsibility that God has given to you to shepherd people at work to take care of them in the name of Jesus Christ, to care for them, to check in on them, to pray for them. And, and what holds back, what, what is it that holds people back the most is exactly what we were praying about, fear. And fear of embarrassment. You know, Ed, are you telling me tomorrow to walk up into my boss because I know he's been going through a tough time? Are you telling me to go knock on his door, have my boss invite me into his office, and you want me to look at my boss, the guy that signs my checks, the one that can say in an instant that I'm gone and I'm fired. You want me to look him in the eye and say, hey, I've noticed you've been down for a while. Can I pray for you? You want me to do that, Ed? Yes. Yeah, but I'll get fired. Maybe you will. But maybe you won't. Maybe you will, but maybe you won't. And the difference between which one you look at, whether it, you walk into work tomorrow and my voice is going to be in your head all day tomorrow because somebody's boss has been going through it and somebody has been concerned about their boss and they've been fearful. And the difference between maybe he will or she will or maybe he won't, he won't or she won't, the difference between those two is whether you look with eyes of faith or eyes of fear. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? You get fired? No, that's not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is you keep your job, you remain disobedient, and your boss goes to hell. That's the worst thing that can happen. You go ahead. I kind of want my boss. Don't think like that. You don't even think like that because Jesus loves your boss. <laughs> 
Spiritual leaders, we cover this thoroughly in our servants class, but sufficient for today as we think of the kings and each chance that they get. Asa, man, he went, man, he went so far. We're going to have many other good kings as well, but he went so far. Left a few things, but is known as a good king. For those of us entrusted with spiritual leadership, still some of you are going to be entrusted in spiritual leadership in the future, in this church or your church, wherever you might be. Spiritual leaders are spiritual servants. And the degree that you're a successful leader in God's eyes is to the degree that you're a successful servant in God's eyes. More responsibility does not mean less service, it means more. And we're servants, nothing more, nothing less. The fact that you're a spiritual leader, the fact that I'm a spiritual leader, is nothing more than the grace of God. Because nobody deserves to be given responsibility to love people and care for people. You know, you, you look at everything in our life is an act of grace. What do we deserve exactly? What is it that we deserve? Have we forgotten where we've come from? Have we forgotten what, where we were before? I mean, what do exactly do we deserve? Well, whatever it is that we deserve, God has given so gracious to us and so good to us. Not only has he saved our soul and secured our future, but he's allowed us to be vessels. He's been, allowed us to be tools. He's allowed us to be used in his hand to make a difference in people's lives. And I have to say, there's always these seasons. There's always these seasons. As you're praying for pastors and leaders in your church, as you're praying for their wives and their children who serve equally with them, as you pray for those that volunteer and serve their hearts out while they're homeschooling during the day or they're running a business in that, in, during the day, or what, as you're praying for the leaders of your church, your local church, and all that God is doing in their lives, there, there are those seasons where you think you're not making a difference because you don't see visibly. I mean, if you, you go through a week and all your counseling appointments are just bad, 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 and the last one was really bad. We were talking uh, today about some situations in our pastor's meeting, and one of the brothers shared about a counseling appointment many long time ago, but he was talking about how bad it was, that it was so bad that, that the, one of the people in the, one of the couple got up and just walked out right in the middle. I would say that's bad. I mean, it's better than throwing something at you across the desk, but, you know, that's bad. Because when you come into our, you know, these, the, we, the, we go home exhausted because counseling is very, very hard. Very difficult. The Holy Spirit's the counselor, but he uses us. And when you're wrestling with somebody and you're wrestling with the emotions and there's so much resistance and you can see it in their eyes and you can see it in their, in their body language and you can see it, just, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to do this. And, and so much so you're just like, enough is enough, I'm out of here. It's a painful thing. You don't wake up in the morning thinking, I wonder who's going to be mad at me when I invest three hours in their lives when it should have been an hour and I had to push these other appointments back and I invest three hours and at the two hour and 59 minute mark, they get up and bail on it and slam the door on their way out. When you pray, recognize that there are those seasons where you don't see any outward fruit. It's not just for pastors and leaders. You may see it in your own life. You may question sometimes, why am I even following God? I don't see any outward fruit. Well, there are times when you don't see any outward fruit when you plant seeds. As we were sharing with you the opportunity to go pick corn as a family in order to benefit the Food Bank of the Rockies, which we're still taking signups, by the way. So it would be a great opportunity for you to go out. They still need some folks to go out and pick this corn. While when they planted the seed, it took some time to see anything come from that seed. You just look at the field and you're like, whoa, whoa, what happened to the seed? Well, just give it some time. Get through the season. 
Before you know it, you're going to have more. Those seeds are going to produce more than you can possibly think. But what does the Bible say about seeds? That unless a seed dies, unless it dies, you're not going to see anything come up. It requires the death of the seed in order for the corn to grow. But that wasn't the point Jesus was making. The point Jesus was making is in your life and mine. Unless we die to ourselves, you won't see anything grow. And God allows these seasons in our lives when there's appearance of, you know, there's no progress in my marriage, Ed. You need to die to yourself. You know, there's no progress with my kids right now, Ed. You need to die to yourself. You know, there's no progress in my little Bible study that you've got to die to yourself. You know, there's no progress in my friend. You need to die to yourself. And as you die, that's where, the, that's where life is produced. And so there are those seasons, aren't there, where we just don't see any progress. We're just wondering when there's no fruit on the vine. Listen, the Bible says that God is still faithful. And he's doing a work in you and inside of you so that you and I, we will learn to die to ourselves so that life might come. And we're the banner over most of Kings and Chronicles will be the title of this message, that people suffer with poor leadership. And those of you that are leaders and those of you that are entrusted, just please heed my word. And if I had a mirror here, I would say it to a mirror myself. Be a good leader. Your life matters to the people that are following you. Don't take advantage of your position. And don't take advantage of the people that have put their trust in you. Serve them. Serve them well. And to the people that are listening that have leaders in their lives, just remember, you'll never meet a leader that's perfect. So it's grace going out and it's grace returning. And that's where the world sees the true grace of God through his church, where there's love and grace and mercy flowing in the community. That's Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. His message called People Suffer with Poor Leadership can be heard again online at calvaryaurora.org. In today's message, Ed, you pointed out that, yes, people suffer when poor leadership is in place. And I think it's safe to say that some of the leaders in our nation right now would fall into that category of a poor leader. Would you briefly touch on how we as Christians should respond when we're living under an ungodly leader that maybe we don't want to see eye to eye with? Well, I think, Larry, we have to make a distinction between the, the leadership of our government and the leadership of our church. And, and so either way, the Bible tells us that we're to pray for those that are in authority. God put them there, He's allowed them there, and He will deal with them. You know, in 1 Timothy 2.2, it says, Pray this way for kings and all others who are in authority so that we can live in peace and quietness and in godliness and dignity. We're to pray for our leaders. But I also believe that there, there is not a necessity to submit to ungodly leadership within the church. So when there's ungodly leadership in the church, it's to be met with a godly answer. And it's okay to ask questions, and it's okay to say, I don't see this in the Bible. I, I think that um, one just needs to turn on so-called Christian television today to see a lot of forms of leadership that are just not biblical. And, and so when it comes to our government, we're to pray for those that are in authority, we're to pray for those that God has allowed to be in authority over us. And even within the church, we're to pray for our leadership. And when the situation gets to a place where through Matthew 18, you're unable to resolve it, then you really need to pray about where God wants you, 
where God wants you and your family to grow. And I'm not, I'm not speaking to just little disagreements and things we may not see eye to eye on, but I mean wholesale, ungodly, sinful leadership. And it's better at times just to move on to be in a place where there is godly and, and there is godly leadership and men that love Jesus Christ and are serving the flock. Great question. Here in the month of December, we picked out a great book we think you'll enjoy and get a lot out of. It would even make a great Christmas gift. It's called The Case for Christ. Like a journalist would do, Lee Strobel does a personal investigation, searching out evidence that would either confirm or deny Jesus as the Son of God, Savior of the world. And we'll send it to you when you support Abounding Grace with a gift of $25 or more today. Please remember that it's through your support that we're able to bring Abounding Grace to your radio station every day. Maybe the Lord is stirring your heart to get involved in this radio ministry. We are so thankful for each and every gift that comes in, large or small. We can be reached toll-free at 877-30-GRACE or turn to calvaryaurora.org. Again, we can be reached at 877-30-GRACE. Set aside another half hour to join us next time when we'll dig deeper into 1 Kings with Pastor Ed Taylor here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado. 